Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, I'm Robin Colucci, and welcome to the Author's Corner. My guest today is the amazing literary agent, Heather Jackson. Heather was a trade editor for over 20 years, and she last was working with Crown Publishing, a division of Penguin Random House. As an editor, she acted as the creative midwife to multiple dozens of New York Times bestselling authors and titles, including Tim Ferriss, Jillian Michaels, Suzanne Summers, Dr. Stephen Gundry, and a host of others. She moved to becoming a literary agent in 2016 and has represented and several great authors and currently represents one of my clients, Christine Hronek, whose book on eating for your macrotype is set to be released in the spring of 2022. So uh, welcome, Heather. Very nice to be here. So great to have you. And I'm super excited to have you here to talk about our topic today. And, you know, just to give a little background to our listeners, this came about as a result of a conversation that we were having during the weeks of protests immediately following the murder of George Floyd by a police officer. And we were talking about a lot of the issues that are being raised by Black Lives Matter. And also this um, Twitter storm that (laughs) occurred as a result of what was it? My publisher paid me or where authors started to report what they had earned in their book advances. And what we have known for actually, this was, there was a June 10th New York Times uh, article about this as well. And, but you know, those of us who've been in publishing for a while actually have already been very much aware of some of the disparities between uh, white authors and, and black authors. And I just want to in particular, well, authors, people of color in general, but specifically Black authors is is even more egregious disparities. And I just want to report a little bit that 81% of authors are are white. And this is not like in all time. This is like between 2014 and 2018. And only 4% are Black. And this is from a website, Data USA. We also know that the bookstore industry is 72% white, um, white white-owned bookstores, 14% blacks. And the book publishing industry overall, like who works for the book publishing industry or inside of the book publishing industry is 84% white, with only 5.3% being black as of 2019. We have plenty of of examples of proven award-winning Black authors who have struggled to even get a six-figure advance, while first-time debut authors who are white are getting six- and seven-figure advances and are not even proven in the marketplace. And so, oh, here's one. In editorial, this is kind of in our world, Heather, 82% to 85% identify as white. 
so it's really across the board. And, and I think, oh, it was publishing paid me. Hashtag publishing paid me is where Jasmine Ward tweeted that even after Salvage the Bones won the National Book Award, her publishing company didn't even want to give her $100,000 for her next level, for her next book. So this is a massive disparity in an industry that really likes to think of itself, I think, as more sort of liberal and progressive (laughs) (laughs) overall. So there's some general statistics from, you know, some data from the the world. The reason why you so graciously agreed to appear on the show today is because you have some things that you can share with us about what's going on from the inside of being in the publishing world. So what comes to mind when you're hearing me rattle off some of these disparities. It it almost feels so big as to how to figure out how to solve for the inequities seems like such an amazingly huge task. And as you were talking through the, the pieces of data, that's what was going through my mind is where do you get started? And I have been saying you know, for quite some time and in discussions with authors and friends of mine within the, the publishing business that part of the issue is that we need different feeder systems, not just different feeder systems to the publishing houses when it comes to the talent working within its halls, but also when it comes to the books that as an industry we get excited about. You know, basically on any given day, if you look at Publishers Marketplace and Publishers Lunch and look at the deals that are made, you will see that the same places and the same people are covered, as it were. Iowa Writers Workshop, and it's a fine institution, do not get me wrong, but I think, you know, I was reading something the other day where maybe there were two or three students this year who were people of color in the Iowa Writers Workshop. And not to, you know, get too off topic, but when a publishing industry is leaning on Yale, Princeton, Harvard, Iowa, and again, the same institutions where they don't have the representation, then you're not going to see, and I'm thinking of fiction in particular right now, but you're not going to see new voices if you're relying on the same places. And until those places change, and until we start looking at different places to get talent, that's not going to shift. But when it comes to hiring, you know, there's so much to this. I don't even, again, the getting started. A living wage would be one way of getting more talent because, you know, the joke around publishing that since I first walked into its its hallways and I came from, you know, the, a girl from the projects who, you know, went to a state college was that you needed to have a trust fund or parents who were willing to support your doing this job. And that has to change. You have to be able to actually love books and make a living from them as you start out in your career for there to be, I think, a more diverse population making the decisions about what is, what is acquired and being part of the conversation about what is interesting for people to read. Because that's another layer of it is that when I first got into publishing, and it was reflected in the Times piece that ran last week where they were interviewing Black agents and editors and publishing professionals, in which I saw the refrain that I had heard all throughout my early years in publishing was that Black people don't buy books. This is a thread that is tangled throughout the system of publishing. And I think that what has been happening in the last weeks and months is unknotting that thread and pulling it out, but it's not going to go lightly when that is a belief system. 
that needs to shift. That needs to change. Oh gosh, I, I don't even, again, I could keep going. I don't even know <laughs> if I've answered your first question properly, but there, there are lots of problems, you know, but it, there are lots of also good humans trying to do good work. I just don't think that sometimes, because indeed publishing is a business, commercial publishing is a business, and it's a business that leans on tradition, right? And this, this tradition is to presume that we know more than we do about who reads what and how to get to them. And, you know, the fact is we know so very, very little about end readers in general, which is why it's, you know, more and more frequent that publishers are leaning on authors to, to be Swiss army knives. They're supposed to bring it all, the, the readers, the platform, the everything. So I love books. And I think most anyone who works in the business of publishing will say that it's a, a bit ass backwards and upside down, but it, it's a business that has good intentions. Is that good enough? No. Are we smart enough to fix it? I think so. But I think it's, you know, it's a big task, but it, it, it starts with open eyes. So let's talk a little bit about publishing paid me because you are a literary agent. So obviously, and we know, uh, and I, I obviously help people get agents and sell books. And it really has been very opaque, right, in terms of people reporting their advances. Sometimes I've even had publishers say, do not tell anyone what this advance was, right? Because they don't, <laughs> they don't necessarily want their other authors coming back and saying, why did you give that person this? You know? And so uh, at the same time, though, I find it so interesting that when this one person tweeted this, that so many people you know, were willing to step forward and come clean. And what do you think about this idea of being more transparent around advances? The, how that might that help correct, if, if at all? I don't know that I think that a publisher is making an offer predicated on the color of anybody's skin. I think that it goes back to what I was saying earlier, where there's a presumption about size of audience. And the process of how a book is acquired, it's a little bit like a seventh circle of hell for an editor to begin with. But in that process is a work of fiction. And I'm not talking about buying a work of fiction, but there are these embedded assumptions. You have to create a profit and loss statement predicated on a book that doesn't exist. You have to try and imagine what that book's path will be. That work of fiction you know, becomes your PNL. You're imagining it's going to be a huge hit. You're going to put in big numbers. You're imagining that it's going to be a modest one. You're going to put in small numbers. And but that very beginning process point that determines a lot of what will happen with that book. So it determines what's going to be paid for the book. And so the question is, what changes the narrative being told about any individual title? And a lot of times what changes that narrative is not about an individual editor's love of a book. It's about there being a pack of editors and publishers interested in that particular title, which then bids that book up. So it's not as cut and paste as that. So, you know, why would a publisher value a work of fiction at $5,000 versus seven figures? And, you know, that's based on a presumption that they have comparables that this book will perform like. Even though I, I have wanted for years, and I've said this to anybody, like I would love to see how frequently the PL that is done for a book actually matches what happens to the book in the marketplace. Because when you have a failure rate, and we do, you know, eight out of 10 books don't work or don't perform to expectations. When you have that kind of hit rate, clearly something is not working. 
or maybe it is working. I think that the problem is, again, complicated, complex. Publishing is not a traditional product. We can't say, I'm going to put out 10,000 SKUs and we know that it will sell through. You send out books and they can come back three years later. They can come back five years later. There is this thing of like, they're always returnable. There's another layer of everything that's been going on online book selling. There's the additional layer of trying to break through all of the noise that is social media. There's a, there are so many factors that affect the, the sale of a book. But one of the very first is what does the editor, and the editor doesn't work in a vacuum. What does the editor and the team together presume this book is going to do? And that starts the whole narrative of what they think will happen with a book. And it still doesn't dictate whether or not readers will respond that way. You can build the bestseller, I think, for a little bit, but word of mouth is everything. Absolutely. I'm sorry, I'm getting lost in my thoughts a little no, bit. I was so. just, yeah, I was just like, I, I've often described it the way that publishers bid on books is educated gambling, right? So they're, you know, they're, they're taking the little that they do know and they're, they're basically rolling the dice on what they think it will do. And again, it astounds me that publishing continues to, to thrive, which I'm delighted for, in an environment where they don't actually understand exactly how to methodically sell books, right? Like, like, like you said, well, like it's any be- other product. Well, because what makes you choose a book, right? Right. Like exactly. literally, what is that impulse when you're faced with twenty different titles on the same topic? If you're talking nonfiction, what is it about the the one that you decide to buy or the two that you decide to buy? Is it that you saw more media about it? Maybe. Is it that you loved the jacket? Possibly. You, the one thing we know for sure is to read it, right? For sure. Your friend telling you to read it is the one thing we know for sure sells books. It's right. word, good word of mouth, you know. So, so um, let's go back a little bit to the assumptions because I think that the the idea of the assumptions that editors are making could easily be connected to the other thing that we talked about, which is the feeder system, right? So there is a thing I believe it's it, whether it's overtly stated or not. There's definitely an idea of pedigree, right? When an author oh, yes. you with an education from an Ivy League school or its equivalent, like Stanford, mm-hmm. you know, something that's, or like you talked about these top MFA programs, you know, Iowa or Brown, or, you know, some of these, these really uh, well thought of programs that, and, and schools that have, you know, obviously they're elite, it's, it's elite, it's an elite community. Yes. And so, and that does weigh a great deal in a publisher's mind when they're, selecting which books is what I'm well, absolutely a lot of times they're looking at pedigree but not the actual it's it's kind of you know oh gosh I, I think pedigree and platform are the two places that we can go wrong where we presume that if an author has a sizable platform that means that platform is going to come and read their book or forget that the most important platform is the book itself and it actually delivering and being a great book but the pedigree is another part of it and it's all embedded in the same kind of systemic isms that we bring to the conversations, not intentional again, but clearly there. Why do we value someone who is coming out of Iowa or Yale more than out of Rutgers or University of Virginia? Why is their talent presumed to be less? And that's a longer conversation about our belief about these pedigreed places, but is there real truth to it? And I mean, and why, and can we consider places like Howard and Spellman 
I mean, well, the thing is, is with, with, and this, to my knowledge, most of the historically black colleges and universities, their MFA programs don't have creative writing at the center. And we need them to do so. Right. You know, um, one of my author friends, Sophronia Scott, she and I have been friends since we, we worked together when I was her editor on her first book. Uh, we were having a conversation about a year ago about this very issue and, and the feeder systems. And so, you know, she did something about it. She's going to be the creative director of a program where the focus is going to be to bring more people of color, more BIPOC folks to the table so that we can get more voices in this space on the shelves. Yeah. And that, you know, that's also part of it, right? Because the publishing industry in a lot of ways is a very small town, you know, (laughs) there's, there's these big five publishing houses. It's very, there's a lot of cross pollinating. There's a lot of people who stay in the industry and maybe move around inside of it. And so I think that also could be part of why it can be so difficult to, to bring in new voices, right? Because I don't want to go as far as to say incestuous, but, you know, it definitely has. Well, oh gosh, you know, it's a business that is supposed to be steeped in creativity, but it is equally, if not more so, steeped in traditions and mores. Going back to that work of fiction, I think Jonathan Carp was the first person who I heard write about how we launch a book within publishing as being like kabuki theater. Because you're talking about a book that doesn't exist yet, you know, sharing, making a jacket, you're creating, a, you know, a story about it to the sales team and the publicity team and all the rest of it. And, there, and there's nothing there to share with them yet. And there's a lot of kabuki theater in publishing, yes, but there's also this leaning on traditions and mores and ways to do things. And that constant, we're, it, we're not the most progressive, we're not the early adopters, we're not the, you know, let's jump on the and explore and, and, and forge new ground. There's such a traditionalist thing going on with publishing that frankly, I think that's part of the problem too, is again, some really smart and really talented people, but systems that are in place that stay in place and you don't shake them up and you don't necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily listen to your young people in publishing either. They don't get a voice at the table and again, this is imprint specific and it's house specific, but it's very hard to get a voice at the table without first being in, indoctrinated into the system of publishing, right? I don't know that that answers, but I think it, I do think it's part of it is that we're, we're not breaking new ground. We talk about a great deal wanting things that are novel and things that are counterintuitive. You know, those are the two words you'll hear all, over and over again when it comes to acquisitions. And the fact of the matter is that the things that are truly novel are really hard exactly. to sell because there aren't, there, aren't the, there aren't the marketplace comparables. I remember when I was working with Tim Ferriss on his first book, and I, I remember how hard it was to get the buyers at the, the major booksellers to come on board. The lifestyle buyers thought it was too businessy, and the business buyers thought it was too lifestyle-y. And, you know, he had created this hybrid that now, of course, spawned a whole you know, shelf of books and a whole genre of books. Right, but right. when it was new, you know, very hard to sell in. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting, because that's something you'll see over and over in the publishing industry, right? Is they want, they want the new idea, the new solution, but not too new, right? <laughs> not, not, not too novel. So there's that tension. Um, well, there's a lot of fear that runs through publishing. And again, it, it's a complicated knot, but Part of it is that you're only as good as your last bestseller, depending on the house that you work at. 
and the chime of big books, big books, big books, that's been a constant. And it makes it very hard to take risks. And, and, and what's kind of paradoxical about that is it then makes publishers take bigger risks than perhaps they should. I think there's a little bit of this magical thinking that if you spend an enormous amount of money on the book, it kind of failure proofs it. And I actually think it does the opposite. Or if you buy a book from someone who has millions of followers, that means that's going to be a successful book. Again, not true. If you look at the data, it's just not the case. Mm-hmm. But because, you know, gosh, because there's been a contraction in the industry over the last decade plus, there are fewer people doing more, you know, like I don't blame the people within the trenches. I think that they are doing the best they can. Editors are so overworked. They are, you know, so hardworking. And I'm not saying they're the only people in publishing, but they are kind of where authors start, right? They're the the, the gatekeeper. They're the advocate in-house. And they are working their buns off, but they have to, again, work within a system that makes it very hard to take risks. And even if they want to take a risk, very hard to get the approval to do so because they're, you know, you've got to go up the chain of command to get there. Right. Complicated. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely complicated. And like you said, I mean, you know, an editor's job could be at stake, right? If the book fails too strongly, right? So well, they get the blame. It's an interesting thing. You know, it's a team decision, right? And no editor is allowed to buy a book without getting approval. But it's not infrequent that if, if they have some highly invested in books, that if they don't work, they're the ones that end up, you know, on right. the cutting block. Exactly. So speaking of publishing houses, so one of the things that the New York Times article uh, reported is that Penguin Random House seems to have taken some action as a result of the publishing paid me Twitter post and has put out an email to employees saying that they will share their statistics and demographics on its on its workforce, commit to increasing the number of books it publishes by people of color, and mandate mandate anti-racist training among its staff and they assigned the How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi as a reading assignment. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think those are all good steps. But as someone who worked within the hallways of Penguin Random House for a decade, there's a lot that needs shifting to really make it happen. I'm going to go out on a limb and say something that I think, you know, is it's true of my experience, which is that the hallways are very much, and you quoted the statistics earlier, it's very much, and this is all of publishing, so I'm not trying to like, you know, attack uh, PRH at all, but very white. And unfortunately, the faces of color that you see within the building tend to work in subservient roles. And I think that is more than shameful, the mailroom, the cleaning staff, Mm. and that shouldn't be, period, the end. That's a place where there's certainly could be some some shifts and changes immediately. But again, going when it comes to st- HR needs to get, you know, into this in a deeper way, right? There needs to be recruitment from, you know, different places, different feeder systems. I know I keep on referring to feeder systems, but well, I think I that's interesting. interesting. I think that, yeah, because I think the feeder system is absolutely a factor here, right? Because who are they choosing to hire into these jobs, right? And they're they're also looking at pedigree. They're also looking. Right? And a lot of the kids that get through, right, for the editorial assistant or whatever, they're, they're the ones that get the, you know, they have every advantage known 
to a person and then they, you know, they look really good on paper. I remember when I was looking for my last assistant when I was there and I actually did not want that. <laughs> I wanted to give a kid like myself, you know, kind of a foot in the door because there are people who don't have the ability, you know, no one has it now, but, you know, to do their junior year abroad and to, you know, spend years traveling around the world and to do, you know, do these very fancy things, you know, they don't have access to it. And that shouldn't mean they don't have access to a, a job within a field that they love. So we have to check our assumptions on so many different levels is really what it boils down to. And I think that that's, that's true. <laughs> that's true of publishing. That's true all across the the land right now. And in checking those assumptions, we also have to not lose our humanity and our belief, our belief in conversation and that we can, you know, we can make great things happen and kind of together in the world if we stay open to each other. Because I think uh, another part of everything that has been happening and swirling around us in the last couple of months, and this is not part of our conversation per se, but it's something that I find troubling, which is a certain intolerance on the left that kind of matches the intolerance that I see on the right. And I think that maybe we need to cut this part out of the conversation only because that intolerance though, I, don't, I think it stands as another obstacle in the road to getting to where we want to get to. And we need to see what is true of the present, what was true of the past and see it clearly but not be so cancel culture ready to hate each other if, if we don't completely get it right and don't understand it. Considering this, I think that it is definitely an issue that there's such a small percentage of people of color and specifically Black people working inside of the publishing industry because I, that absolutely has to be impacting the selection because you're going to want to pick books that feel the most relevant to you in your own experience, right? I mean, it's just a natural kind of human thing to assume that if it's interesting to you, it would be interesting to other people. <laughs> a lot of lists get crafted that way. You ask any editor who's just had a baby, how many child, I'm talking about people who work in the practical nonfiction space and you know, their list is going to look, you know, very parenting heavy for a while. And I think <laughs> editors absolutely choose books as do agents that, that are reflective of some life experience that they connect to. So yes, you need diversity, much like, you know, that, that legalized gambling that we were talking about. You need a diversity. Um, actually, maybe the metaphors don't quite go together. Maybe instead, you know, you're looking at seedlings and trees and redwoods. You want a diversity of like the flora and the fauna when it comes to the size of the books, you want the same thing when it comes to every part and every player within the process of publishing. That's where interesting things will get done. That's where new work will come. And, you know, when we're talking about, like you were just talking about the polarity between the left and the right and how, you know, everyone's operating from these assumptions. And I, I think that one of the greatest missed opportunities of not having as much diversity among authors is that we're really missing out on what I think is probably the most powerful thing that books can do. And I've written about Connection. empathy, right? creating empathy for another yes. person's experience. And yeah. so if, if we're not representing other people's experiences or in their own voice, actually, this reminds me of something you shared with me <laughs> about what was that author, that, that book about, I think it was about migrant workers and are you talking about the American dirt controversy? 
that the woman, another woman who actually is closer to the experience had pitched the same book and it didn't sell. And then, and then a white woman wrote it and it became a New York Times bestseller. No, I think that that's, that's part of the American dirt and that that's, that's complicated. Again, I don't mean to, (laughs) no, well, because it is, I don't think that you can assume that one person wrote it and it wasn't bought because of, right. Right. There, you know, two different books and two different writers and two different reactions. And I think that the piece about own voices that is so important, right? As you were talking about, we need we need to have connection and empathy. And that's what books do best, right? We, is that they they make us feel seen. They make the reader feel that they are not alone in whatever it is they're experiencing. If done well, if crafted well, they you know, a hundred years later can still sink into your heart and your soul and, and, and grab you. And it doesn't matter who wrote it. It matters that they wrote it. And if we're not bringing voices that are diverse to the table, which we're not, it is not just about, but it's not, we're not bringing diverse voices to the table. And it's not just a result of the, the racial issues that we have in, in, in publishing. It goes again to what we believe is going to sell predicated on all sorts of other like structural things that are built in in our heads and so there's a sameness to a lot of what is being published that's just another layer of the problem with books but that's not on point with our conversation you know opportunity right because like usually missed opportunity because i think one aspect is for the reader to feel seen, right? And for the reader to feel like I'm not alone, which I'm sure, I know I've experienced many times reading a book. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, you have, and I'm sure any, any of our listeners, you know, have had it at least with one book, if not several. But I also think there's that piece of getting a peek into another person's experience and, yeah. and being able to imagine what it might feel like to be in their experience and to really get, you know, especially when we're talking about race, because I think that, I don't know that a lot of people have really forayed, you know, a lot of white people have necessarily forayed into what, imagining what it, what it would feel, feel like. And for us to be able to see the author's humanity and to, and to realize, oh, yeah, I could imagine feeling that way. I can see how this person suffered is really, in my opinion, potentially the most important thing that books can do. Well, um, I agree because I think what it does, what that, that feeling and what that experience does is the thing that I, I believe is perhaps one of the most important failings of our common age right now, which is this disconnection with each other, the reliance on all things social media instead of, you know, hey, how are you doing in real life? It's helped with the intolerance. It's helped with the polarization, the disconnection, the lack of, like all of it can be solved from seeing humanity in somebody else, right? And how do we see that without hearing from them directly? That I think is everything. I think that feeling that I am you and you are me, that recognition that the experience of this other person is is something that... I can cry about, I can laugh about, I can, you name what it is, but that we can see each other clearly. 
I feel like that knits us together as a society. It knits us together as people. And Lord knows, I think we need it more than, than ever. And maybe I'm overemphasizing the, the value of books to do this, but I don't think so. I think that they really can be life-changing. They can be mind-shifting. They can be these deep, deep connectors. And so we as a business, as an industry, as a profession, we owe it to readers we owe it to ourselves we owe it to our country to sound a little you know ultra patriotic to do better to bring a whole panoply of voices to the table that hadn't been heard before to make it a table that is open to everyone to let us all sit down together and break bread and and, and find each other in each other i agree i mean i believe that books are our only hope for world peace so I'll go even farther. <laughs> I mean, really, because it's through books that we can see one another's humanity and we can understand you know, that borders and the idea of color and race are, are constructs. They're bullshit. Excuse me, can I curse? I mean, there are social constructs that have no scientific, like there's... There's no basis for it. It's all made up. There's a really brilliant article that a book, there's a book, and I want to get this book as soon as it's possible. It was in the Times this week. I wish I could remember the name of the article, but do look it up because it's really, really good at looking at kind of how we got here, certainly, but, but that underpinning structural piece that needs to be understood for it to really, really shift and change. But you were talking and I got excited tonight. The publishing industry has a huge opportunity to help lead the way by inviting in diverse voices in the author side, as well as the editorial acquisitions, you know, marketing side, right? Because, and, and really, if you look at the U.S. publishers, because really the hub of publishing in the world is the United States, right? If your book, if your book is successful in the U.S., then we can sell it in all the other countries, right? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's sometimes works in the opposite direction, but we are the biggest. We are the biggest market for right. sure. The biggest, um, and so there's there's a huge opportunity for us to to lead the way and invite more voices, and and I hope that. So I mean, my hope is that this won't be just a conversation du jour, you know of. Little virtue signaling in the morning and then it's over at night. That's been my worry about so much of what I'm seeing on social media is how long will that support go? How much of it is indeed real change or I need to signal that I am part of this particular, you know, party. I hope it's real. I think that it, it feels like a pivotal moment. It feels finally like people are waking up in a deeper way. And I think that, you know, the kind of madness that has been happening in our political universe for the last number of years maybe helped to prod that awakeness because the overt and vile racism that has become part of the landscape once again. And I say part of the landscape because I don't think it was acceptable to come out and, and, and do the things that, that are being done now and done without, it seems, any penalty sometimes. Although there's lots of penalties sometimes too. So, you know, there, there is that good side of the Twitter takedown where people who are doing abhorrent things are being seen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I do feel that there is this moment, but it, it, it has to be. It's kind of like when you talk about climate change, you know, 
and I don't know that I can make this, this connection work, but someone, a friend of mine and I were talking about this and they were saying, you know, why is it that we're always told about our individual choices and what we can do, you know, where you don't use plastic bottles and you don't have single use this, that, or the other. And they said, well, why instead aren't they talking to the big corporations that are producing these things? Because that's where you could make the most change most quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. And so our big corporations, our big industries, that's where we need some real action being taken. Yes, on an individual level, absolutely. But it's the, the, the system and the structure that needs to be shifted seismically. Right. And it's wonderful what the Random House put out the message that they did. Yes. And Jet put out a similar message as well um, that was quoted in the Times. And there might, there probably were others. And I think the real question is, so what, what happens next? What happens after everyone at Penguin Random House has a copy of how to be an anti-racist? Then what are we going to do? Um, you know, <laughs> then, well, then, I don't know. You know, again, I think that, you know, what is the... PRH was one of my favorite places to work in all of my yeah. time in publishing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that they generally tend to be the leader in the more forward-thinking pieces. And I, as I said, we're a very traditionalist business. I think they're going to try. I think that I don't have crystal ball, right? I don't, I don't know what every major house is going to do or not do. I think that, you know, the fact that Simon and Schuster has hired, and I think it's the first time in my publishing lifetime to see a black woman at the head of a major house with Dana Kennedy coming in from the Pulitzer board to run Simon and Schuster. I think that's a really I also think it's, you know, not only a strong signal that things are shifting, but the fact that that conversation was going on for two years, that it was something that was underway before it became popular to do. But again, I know I keep on going back to the same thing. I think that the intentions are there. I think the desire to make the changes are there. I think that that's absolutely clear. I believe that the feeder systems have to change on in, in order for it to really, you need to, you need to start bringing those voices in and you need to start listening to those voices too, where they exist. And that means uncomfortable conversations. That means, you know, really not just uncomfortable conversations. It means real conversations in that can be tricky in a corporate culture anywhere. Right. Because, you know, if you're afraid that you're going to get in trouble, if you talk about this thing with your boss or supervisors, it's going to take some really delicate, delicate handling and, and a real desire for real change. Again, I think that, you know, publishing is, I think now aware of that it can't lean on we're a liberal business and <laughs> industry of liberal minded people, uh, you know, that it's now aware that it, it too <laughs> has some really serious issues that need solving. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I do think, again, I think they're really talented and really yeah. lovely people who will want to do the right thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it is, I think that, you know, the first step in any kind of change is awareness. And yes. I think that, the, that there has been a wake-up call, you know, and not that there's never been a wake-up call before, but this does feel different. It does feel different. You know, I think that it will be interesting to see, you know, if we were, you and I were to touch base in six months and a year, you know, what has shifted more, what has, what has not, you know, what's working, what's not working. Because I don't think it's something where it happens overnight. I, I just, no. I think that, <laughs> I don't think it happens overnight because I also think that bookish people are, you know, book nerds, worse, but they're kind of a smaller group of people in the, the general population 
people wanting to, you know, people have been talking about book publishing as a dying industry for so long. I don't believe that that's true. The sky has been falling in publishing since I got in and it's never fallen. But, you know, I do think that all book nerds should be welcome in publishing. And it is, you know, a small well, little business. And publishing has never been known for being early adapters, right? Never, <laughs> never, 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 never. Not the skill set. Um, we're a little more of a lumbering beast. Right. Um, <laughs> a lumbering beast. dinosaur that, that shows, you know, despite uh, all these claims that it's going extinct, I, I too believe that, as Mark Twain would have said, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. Are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, the sky is not falling. I actually, I keep on hoping that, you know, between this kind of cultural awakening about the, the issues of, of of racism and the pandemic and, you know, the, the, the kind of combined painful power of both that we will, you know, see, okay, this is an opportunity to do things differently, to try, you know, even the marketing of books has had to shift fairly seismically in the last couple of months. So, you know, maybe there are new openings and new opportunities and new possibilities that we can now see that that we couldn't see before we had to kind of sit with ourselves a little bit more and stay home and think a little bit more rather than be stuck in never ending meetings, which happens all over publishing all of the time. I'm sure those meetings are still going on. So um, <laughs> that's just my own musing. You know, if I were queen of the world, this would be fixed immediately and, <laughs> and then we wouldn't have this conversation. But um, <laughs> so if you were queen of the world and you could wave a wand, but you could do one thing, to bring more diversity to publishing, what would you do? Oh, that's a really good one. If I could wave a wand and do one thing, for whatever reason, I don't know. Maybe it's starting with children. For me, the, the thing that saved me and, and got me, you know, from the projects to here was reading, was books, right? But I discovered that love kind of independently through my parents, but if there could be, you know, wave a wand over a young kid who doesn't have access to, or maybe I, I keep on thinking is get to the children. I don't know what that means exactly. You know, wave a wand and put books in every child's hands that are representative of who they are and what they're experiencing. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that magic wand. <laughs> I, I don't know how one shifts it. Yeah. I think that... I had a magic wand, I would want us all to, you know, literally just see each other and it sounds maybe a little Pollyanna-ish, but just really to love each other, to get rid of these ridiculous constructs that we've created, get rid of it, like dig out the root, you know, at the root, the most painful, and I think it was Condi Rice that called it America's birth defect. This, the, the, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would erase racism from our world. But that would be one hell of a magic wand. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. I'd like yeah. to get rid of all the isms, but that's the biggest ism for me. Yeah, I would love for people of color to see opportunities for themselves in publishing and, and be encouraged to see opportunities for themselves in publishing and you know both on the author side as well as publisher side and i'd like to see some proactive movement towards that right like maybe and like you said i think i think starting with the children isn't is a valid thing 
maybe publishing has programs going into schools and like career fairs at junior high schools and high schools and, and, and start that young. Right. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, listen, schools could even be doing like, you know, nowadays you, anyone can publish. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can I mean, self-publish, right? right. I, mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting, you know, to give children the experience of being able to publish something at a younger age. Oh, that's fun. Well, maybe you can make part of Scholastic Book Fair some kind of publishing experience for the children. But I'm thinking, like, as you were talking about, as we're talking about this, like, if we already know how to get to schools through Scholastic Book Fairs, maybe we have career fairs that are going to those same schools that talk about uh, a career in books um, that, you know, kind of maybe have them publish a book, maybe have them edit a book, you know, different design the jacket for the book, market it, whatever it might be. Um, Yeah. I think that, again, it's just like, if you haven't been shown an opportunity, you don't necessarily intuit yourself into it. No. Um, Well, I didn't even know that there was a career in books until I was working at a big entertainment company after, after college. And we were doing a study for them and they were thinking of starting up an adult trade publishing arm. And I was like, Oh, read all day and get paid for it. (laughs) It's like, yes. Like I I truly, you know, as a lifelong bookworm had no idea that there was something that, that one could do in books as a thing. I also think that the point of entry, you know, we're talking about the feeder systems. I'm going backwards a second. People shouldn't have to think that they need to go to an NYU publishing program or the Columbia publishing program or any of these publishing programs in order to get a job in publishing. I think that's a barrier to entry that should be removed. Yes. They should love books. They should you know, love writing. And it, you shouldn't have to have the, the monies to attend another form of education on top of college in order to do it. Right. Absolutely. Well, Heather, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your experience and insight and ideas. It's just been so great to have you. Absolutely my pleasure. I sometimes think I talk a little bit too much and a little too long, but it was great fun to to sit and chat with you. You as well. Thanks again for coming. Thanks, Robin. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.